All right, we're live. I'm not even sure if you can hear me or, and I'm sure my picture is pretty blurry. I'm at an undisclosed location, um, the uh, for fleeing from the Espionage Act and Canada's Emergency Act for my unacceptable <laughs> opinions. Um, you can hear Layla Metri laughing in the background. Um, she's here with me from freezing Ottawa. I'm actually in rural Nicaragua right now. Um, and so the internet connection is really choppy. This might be the last you see of me virtually, which means it's the last you see of me at all, because if I'm not online, I don't exist as a, uh, laptop class trader, but you know, I decided, and I'm looking at the picture right now, it's horrible. So I really apologize for that. And what we're going to do and bear with me is if we have any issues here, uh, with sound, with audio, we're just going to go to audio only and you'll see a weird avatar of me fil filming um, an ultra Zionist fanatic in Jerusalem and you'll see Layla as a cat. Um, <laughs> Layla, Metrui, this is just too important not to do. So this is about, this is going to be a discussion about what Layla has seen in Ottawa um, during this truckers and now farmers convoy protest, which has been so roundly demonized in the media. Uh, yeah. and mischaracterized as a collection of Nazi conspiracy nuts. Uh, you know, I was hoping to play some clips from live streams that Viva Fry was doing there to just show a different portrayal, but Layla will describe it no matter what in audio. Um, so I think it's, it's, it's too important to not do, even though my internet connection is obviously horrible. I'm looking at what you're seeing on live stream and I'm just like, I'm more pixelated than like, I look like a kind of like melted Lego character. But uh, let me bring in uh, Layla. Layla is the co-host of Red Star Radio, which is a podcast. You can listen to it anywhere. Uh, Spotify, uh, as, you know, maybe she'll fill in for Joe Rogan. Um, <laughs> and, you know, where else? Everywhere. Here she is. And, can, and, and it seems like we can hear you so we can actually have this conversation. Uh, but it's a, it's a great podcast with Alexander McKay, who I've had on this show before. And, you know, they're addressing issues like COVID, the environment from, a, I would say, a Marxist perspective that isn't often heard by other Marxists. So we're going to get into the, the theory today as well. Um, let me just ask you, Layla, um, just a very general question. What are you seeing and hearing in Ottawa? What have you been seeing and hearing and how does it contrast with those who've allowed their, those critics of mainstream media who've allowed their perspective to be shaped by mainstream media? Hmm. Well, um, and just let me know if I should turn off my camera the noise is breaking up, but uh, yeah, I mean, the distance between what the media has been portraying and what is going on right now in Ottawa couldn't be more stark. Like I, I, I go to the protest nearly every day. I've been there every day. I didn't go yesterday. I was um, seeing my mother, but um, I mean, there just couldn't be more distance between the media portrayal of this protest movement and, you know, increasingly, I mean, I, I would say most of the political class in Canada's portrayal of this protest and what's really going on. Um, I, it, it's now been branded as an occupation. We had Mark Carney, who is a, a leading contender for the Liberal Party leadership, uh, 
pen and op-ed today in the Globe and Mail saying that uh, it was seditious and that everyone who was supporting the protest. Sorry, Layla. Uh, sorry. So, yep. Sorry, Layla, to interrupt, but uh, let's let's try to go with audio only for now because it's it's getting a little choppy. You know, worries. Um, I prefer not to see myself on camera anyway, so <laughs> it works out. But just to say that um, I was just saying that Mark Carney penned you look, a. You look much better. <laughs> you look much better than a lot of leftist podcast hosts and and streamers who have faces made for radio. So don't worry about it. Okay. Uh, please <laughs> pick you. up where you left off. Uh, so Mark Carney is a big figure here in Canada. He's a actually well-known Canadian. Otherwise, he was the governor of Bank of England. He was the governor of Bank of Canada. He is a leading contender um, right now. I mean, you know, um, uh, the rumor rumor has it, and it's probably true that he's going to be uh, can, he's going to be presenting himself as a contender for a liberal leadership um, coming up. Uh, presumably, this is Trudeau's last term. Um, and he penned a op-ed today in the Globe and Mail saying that it was seditious, that it was uh, an occupation, that it was violent, et cetera, et cetera. And I mean, I, I'm telling you, I have been spending hours around this protest. I've gone when it's been full. I've gone when it's been empty. I have seen nothing but uh, peaceful protesting. I've spoken to tons of truckers. I've spoken to tons of protesters. And in my personal experience, Everyone has been nothing but very friendly um, and very inspired by all of the support that they see that they're getting. Um, and uh, you know, I think everything from the way, from the political orientation that this whole thing has been depicted as, as you know, a right wing movement, as a far right wing movement, as fascistic, as white supremacist, like these are all labels that I just cannot see applying to what's going on right now in Ottawa. Well, well, why not? I mean, we've seen this incessant focus on a Confederate flag. I understand that the truckers removed that person who was being mysteriously photographed by someone linked to <laughs> Justin Trudeau. Um, yeah. <clears throat> there was some Nazi flag in there that looked kind of just mysterious. I mean, just who does that? Maybe there, there were Nazis in there. But, you know, you see this incessant focus on that. But, you know, I've been contacted online, you know, through, you know, our public email and on Twitter and elsewhere by people who are, you know, fans of the gray zone. Um, you know, the whole left is divided on this issue. They're fans of the gray zone and they insist to me that this is just a kind of um, covert vehicle or Trojan horse for right-wing takeover and secessionist movement in Canada. And that money mm -hmm. is flowing in from right-wing billionaires. The GoFundMe account was just like a mask for some billionaire I don't know, Koch brothers, Allard cash funding of a right wing takeover and that all these people are just basically dupes. I mean, what is your response to that? Well, I mean, a seditious takeover to do what? To end the mandates and end the vax, the, 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 the COVID-19 restrictions that Canadians have been living with for two years, extremely harsh restrictions that have not been justified by any level of government in this country. What would the goal be here? These protesters are not, contrary to what all of these journalists and some politicians are claiming, the protesters are not calling for a dismantling of government. They are calling for the end of the restrictions and the mandates, or if the government isn't able to do that, to resign. That's not seditious. Any, any, uh, anyone can start a petition and press their MP 
and ask them to uh, to trigger a leadership review of the leader of their party. That's not seditious. This is a normal democratic process. In terms of of the donations, listen, my my analysis, you know, as a Marxist as well as I can do Marxism, and I'm not saying obviously I'm like the best Marxist out there, but my analysis is that listen. It's a messy movement. It is, it is confused. There's political orientations of all kinds. When I was at the protest, I was asking people, what do you do for a living? How would you define your political orientation? People would say all sorts of things from all across the political spectrum. They would say anarchist. They would say, I don't know. They would say PPC, the People's Party of Canada, which is like, I guess, some kind of populist oriented uh, party, which has no seats in parliament. They would say conservative sometime. But no one, but you know, they weren't there to promote any, the truckers protest as a movement as a whole, isn't there to promote any one party or any one political orientation even. The demands are very precise and actually they're extremely modest. It would just take us back to the status quo of two years ago. In terms of funding, listen, um, I think that uh, in, it, when you see this kinds of thing, when you see a genuine grassroots movement suddenly emerge organically, right? which is what this is, okay? I don't, I don't know how people can deny the real working class support that these truckers have garnered behind them. In addition to the fact that a lot of the truckers on um, parked in front of parliament right now are working class as well. You know, I, I, I think that the leadership certainly is, is petty bourgeois, but that's not like a bad thing in and of itself. It, it, it limits the potential of this movement. It limits what they can do here. And in fact, it limits them to a horizon which definitely would not involve them overturning the government, right? And so when politicians, like American politicians that are more, that are trying to, you know, um, increase their populist um, kind of credentials, this is a risk-free way of doing that for them. They don't, they, what risk do they, do they um, suffer from commenting and supporting a random Canadian uh, protest movement. Nothing. Like it, it just looks good for them, and it's cost-free for them. Um, I, you know, the, the, I would, you know, I, people can make all sorts of claims about the kinds of funding that the truckers are getting. They can make all sorts of claims about linkages between this or that far-right group or whatever, and the organizers of this protest movement or the lead organizers. And uh, you know, the leadership of this is actually quite weak. Like um, a lot of this is, you know, self self-organized. Um, but you know, extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. You know, I can also make a claim from what I've seen is that you know, normal people, normal people who live in and around Ottawa and across the border of Quebec are coming in every day, bringing food and fuel to the people, the truckers, completely un unasked by anyone to do. They're just self-motivated to come support this protest movement because they believe. They want to see an end to these mandates and an end to these COVID-19 restrictions. So if you want to count, counter my observations and my analysis of this protest movement, you need to present some compelling evidence to that regard. And I haven't yet seen any. It's just content, it's just speculative, speculative um, statements like coming from everywhere. Where is, you know, even this characterization of, of the protest movement as violent, you know, actually. There's a small and amazing um, kind of journalistic outfit here in Ottawa called uh, Black Locks. And they, they, they check the police to see the number of police reports um, over the first week of the protests versus last week of the protest. And they actually found that the number of police reports have gone down, right? So, you know, I, I, I think the onus is on people making these extraordinary claims to present an, a well-evidenced case 
and and show me that it's true because um i it doesn't make sense just deductively like what what would they be trying to like what are they trying to do like you know and the mandates like this is not that is not a seditious aspiration this would take us back to the canada that existed just two years ago in fact it is extremely modest and so i personally reject this because it doesn't make any sense on its face but if someone wants to do some investigation and investigative work and prove the links and demonstrate the flow of monies from whatever various nefarious individuals then go ahead and do it okay that is a weird shot of me um yeah i mean yeah that shot is too weird sorry we're gonna have to lose the camera i was trying to turn uh the definition down to try to make this um a little bit more uh doable but it looks like i'm in a funhouse mirror so let's get rid of that um basically i see a parallel here between the ro the rogan affair and trudeau and his pr team's concerted effort to paint the entire mass of people protesting as a bunch of Nazis. And it's that when Ro Joe Rogan debated CNN's in-house doctor, Sanjay Gupta, and it was, you know, nice of Sanjay Gupta to, to actually come in and go, you know, go into the octagon with Rogan. Gupta got destroyed. <laughs> yeah, he uh, did. <laughs> and that's when the campaign against Rogan started because the media will never let one of theirs get humiliated by one of the, um, deplorables or someone from alternative media um you that's why they so rarely will debate any of us uh mm -hmm. directly uh, particularly on the issue of covid and you talk to the, the people they call covid deniers they're so much more well informed they spend so much more time focusing on the issue it's much more personal for them and so they had i knew that they would nail rogan for not getting vaccinated against racism um <laughs> I just knew it would turn into something about racism if you know if it wasn't going to be misogyny or something like that. And it seems like this whole discussion that the trucker convoy forced about mandates, the Canadian liberal charter of values, which I think was written by Trudeau's dad, yes. and the cross-border mandates and the legality of the whole thing, which is being rammed through under emergency law as it is here, as it is in the States where I live, has been shifted to a discussion about left and right, which, you know, papers over class issues and top-down, you know, anti-establishment, anti-elite sentiment, which is rampant among a public that's been betrayed by neoliberalism. And you have the organized left coming in, all these sectarian socialist parties who are, you know, basically doing the same thing and focusing on the class character of truckers for owning their own cabs and declaring that anyone from the left who states support for this movement has not read enough Lenin. Um, <laughs> that's really like what so it's about. Off. <laughs> it's about Marxist Leninist theory. It's about racism. It's about fascism, but it's not about the issue 
that has upset so many Canadians, which are lockdowns, mandates, school closures, people going crazy, being stuck at home, people who can't hug their grandmas before they die in homes. Real human issues have been taken off the table by this campaign. And that was the point. Just as everything that Rose wanted to debate and would have debated with anyone has been uh, turned into uh, him reciting a George Carlin routine and using the N-word. Yeah, That's listen, my little rant. Well, listen, when when you have a mass movement of any kind, you're going to get all sorts of ideas coming in there. Like, there is no Canadian Nazi party. Like, this is in America. Like, the Confederate flag has no political weight here in Canada. It doesn't mean the same thing probably to Canadians here or whatever. But yes, people have different ideas and they come with all different sorts of political orientations, like interpretations of the world, some of which I don't agree with. Does that mean essentially what, what the politicians here have done and, and, and promoted is this idea that just because you have wrong ideas about something, you should therefore be excluded from the democratic process. We don't want to hear from you at all on any topic. Okay. What this, this protest movement, yes, it is about, um, you know, the, the demands are specifically geared towards restrictions around COVID-19 and the vaccine mandates. Yes. But what is this? really about you know when you pull away this specific demand what is undergirding these demands it's demand for bodily integrity as against the state as against the employer right it's about freedom of association which has been cancelled essentially throughout canada on and off for two years freedom of assembly freedom of movement freedom of speech and and the right to have your voices heard and considered in a liberal democracy. No level of government has offered any justification, any empirical justification or analyses showing us that any of these approaches, be it vaccine mandates or lockdowns, yields more benefit than harm. None of them. They're just doing it essentially and asking us to follow their rules because I told you so, okay? Why is it that when someone um, stands up and says, well, I don't agree with this um, method of governing and you need to show me, you need to prove to me that this is worthwhile, that my sacrifices with regards to my civil liberties and rights and also people's real physical pain that they have had to undergone because of these lockdowns and restrictions. For example, in Ontario, once again, we've had another lockdown the long-term care homes are completely closed. It's it's almost impossible to go see your elderly relative that is in a long-term care home. They're once again dying and suffering in isolation, only interacting with people with masks and gloves. Is this uh, a harm that should be disregarded? I don't think so. If you can show me that there is some kind of true benefit to doing this okay perhaps we can have a discussion that's not a political decision but that is something off of which we can do a discussion just governing by diktat for two years is not is it, it, it's not a democratic it doesn't make any sense within the context of a liberal democratic state okay these these demands are so modest they don't even break through the constraints of basic liberalism okay this is how modest these kinds of demands are this is how modest these the striving is but even this low level of, um, uh, of aspiration is unacceptable to the ruling class here in Canada. They don't want 
any dissent whatsoever against their whatever chosen mode of dealing with this pandemic. And, you know, I, I don't know why anyone thinks that people, I'm, I'm, I'm shocked that it's taken this long for people to stand up against this stuff. It is, it, it is ruled by irrational authoritarian, authoritarianism instead of, you know, following even the basic normal processes of parliament, parliamentary debate. Like, so for instance, the trucker mandate, vaccine mandate, was just an order in council. It wasn't debated in parliament. The, the government has never had to prove its worth in open court against a contending party. No, they just say, well, we're just going to do it. That's it. I don't know. I don't know why anyone should have to accept that under any, uh, like any, if you're claiming this is a liberal democracy, then that's, that's not acceptable. It simply doesn't make sense within this paradigm. If you're going to say, okay, democracy is over, Okay, well then they were talking a different we're talking about something different then. Exactly. And you know, we're we're witnessing a great unmasking. We've been witnessing it for two years. Uh, and that includes the arrest and prosecution of Julian Assange and his betrayal by his own home country, which has done many of the same things in more extreme fashion than Australia than than Canada had, and yeah, it's because it is because Assange blew the doors off of the security state, and now what you see with this protest in Ottawa is that it's an unsanctioned protest because it actually does threaten the imperatives of the establishment. You're allowed to have sanctioned protests, and so you know I was a support I was a supporter of BLM because I was a supporter before there was BLM of all the movements against police violence. It was really personal to me because I've experienced it. My friends have experienced it. People I know have experienced it. And uh, that's what it was about for me. And then I saw Mitt Romney marching in these protests, which were being flooded with foundation money from Ford, Rockefeller Brothers, Open Societies. And that didn't stop me from continuing to march against police violence because of the you know class character of the supporters or Mitt Romney being welcomed there. But this after the military came in against this protest, there was a kind of mass a mainstream media sanctioning of the protest, saying, you know, it's okay to gather there, uh, even though everyone is supposed to be under quarantine and lockdown, and that experts say the virus of racism is worse than the virus of COVID-19. Um, that media class is actually clamoring for the military to come in now. Um, yeah. And yeah. let me, I mean, actually, let me just highlight, let me try to bring this on screen if I can. I mean, this is from a liberal publication in, um, what the hell is going on here? Uh, this is from a liberal publication in uh, Canada. And it's the Thai, and for some reason, Ugh. for whatever reason, um, yeah, I, I think I know what you're talking about. Not, <laughs> is not letting me share it, but it's called the Taiyi. So I'll just have to read it. I'm having problems with StreamYard here too. Uh, mm -hmm. Big apologies to everyone um, for the any all the the uh, technical glitches. Um, and this is a columnist named um, David Clemenhaga. End the occupation. Start with a perimeter around downtown Ottawa. Give is 24 hours to leave. Since police admit they're incapable of doing the job alone, the armed forces should be brought in to assist. So uh, basically, you know, bring the war home, do what the Canadian armed forces did to the Mohawk nation in 1990. Uh, but 
you know, this would, this, 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 but, 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 but this is righteous. Uh, liberals are calling for the military to come in. The Toronto Star basically called the thing, but they relied on, they, they laundered their support for it behind experts on how the military might be able to do this. And then you have, uh, I, I saw a CBC reporter like clamoring for the military to come in. This is, you know, mainstream media in Canada is openly calling for the military to come in against Canadian citizens. Uh, and then you have this, these, these counter protesters. I saw one on a Viva Fry live stream holding up a sign that read sterilize white supremacists and others were basically calling for the military to come in or at least a massive police crackdown. These are the same people who protested with BLM. So what, what is going on here? How much support is there in Canadian society as a whole for sending in the military, invoking the Emergency Act, Emergencies Act, and sending in the military? Well, there are, there are genuine, there are existing legislative processes and laws that exist which would make it possible to call in the military. Um, so that's definitely, it's definitely possible. And so these threats are not empty threats, like it, it, it could happen. Invoking the Emergencies Act on the part of the federal government probably won't happen. I, I, I think that's very unlikely, but they don't need to do that in order to call in the military and um, to, to clear out the protesters. How much support? Uh, it, it's difficult to tell because, so when I think about um, assessing the support of this, protest movement and, and trying to figure out, okay, where is the support coming from? Um, you know, it, it's difficult because there's no, there's no coherent voice or organ for the working class in Canada. There is, there are no more organizations that can be said to represent, you know, a, a, a true working class perspective. Like they don't, their voices are excluded from Canadian politics, from Canadian media, as we're seeing right now, for instance, like any little any little threat to having an intervention within that sphere is rejected violently. When I look at polls done by uh, firms that, um, you know, are typically selected by politicians to give them information and are biased in various ways, like, so for, for instance, many of the polls are done online. And so you're much more likely to get someone to answer your poll if you're um, if you're, uh, you spend a lot of time online, um, the support for the protesters, like they asked a question, one recent one by Innovative Research, asked the question, um, is, uh, do you, do you have a lot in common with the protest movement? And 34% of Canadians of people who they, they surveyed said yes. And then they asked them if they think that the protest is inappropriate. Um, and then around half of the people said that they were inappropriate. But putting that into perspective, I think give, taking into account the bias inherent in these polls, the um, coordinated smear job on the part of the political class in Canada and the media, um, the fact that people have been brainwashed with a relentless fear campaign for two years with regards to this pandemic, um, the fact that um, like, and given the fact also that the Liberal government, I think, garnered 33% of the vote, they're actually more support for the truckers than for the Liberal Party of Canada, which is now the governing party of, of course, they're in a minority government, but the leader, the Prime Minister of this country is, of course, the leader of the Liberal Party of Canada. So listen, I think that, um, I, I think there's a good case to be made that there is widespread support for the truckers. Um, I was at, I was, I was down there the other day and I was talking to a young man who was uh, parked out in his car. He wasn't a trucker himself. He had come down to support the truckers. I didn't ask him um, what he did, 
But um, he said that whenever I need something, um, you know, whenever anyone here voices that they need something, whether it be gas or food or clothing or whatever, whatever else, laundry, it just magically appears like a local will just come and, you know, help them out just like that. And he says no money ever changes hands, you know. So I, I think, you know, these kinds of, 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 of subjective, they're not, you know, quantitative things that I can I can show you in terms of stats, but these I think are, are a real indication that this has, you know, a real popular base. And you know, just looking at the videos of people cheering on the convoy as across Canada, and the way in which different cars and trucks and pickup trucks and stuff joined the convoy for a certain amount of time and then left after, which is why it was always so hard to pinpoint exactly how long this convoy was. Um, I think is indicative that uh, yeah, I think that there is you know support, widespread support, important support. Um, despite the fact that, you know, this protest movement has been entirely demonized. Um, I think calling in the military would be politically, politically very difficult, very risky indeed, which is why, um, you know, they've resorted to these silly little tactics. Like, for instance, uh, the city of Ottawa declared a state of emergency, which really doesn't change anything in terms of their ability to enforce the law. And um, the Ottawa police uh, made a threat that they would be arresting people carrying supplies to the trucker. And so far they have made some arrests, but um, they've really kept their hands off here because they know that that's, it, it's illegal. <laughs> it's illegal to arrest people who aren't doing a crime. <laughs> so so I, th I think that's why they're trying to resort to these threats, to this fear mongering. Um, in order to try to dissuade people from supporting the protest, hoping that it will die down all on its own. But I, I think, you know, if, if things get really tough, like um, uh, the, the, the party, the Liberal Party of Canada or the, the parliament, I guess, entirely, or it, it would have to be a uh, request from the Premier of Ontario, actually, usually to get the military to intervene, they could potentially like make a bad decision and just go for it. And, and that's what's happened in the past with the other two times in recent history where the army has been called to uh, break up some kind of protest or deal with some kind of disturbance. And um, I mean, at that point, um, you know, if someone gets killed or hurt in or seriously injured, that's gonna be a bad time um, for the government that led that charge. So it's hard to say, I think it's a very fluid, it's a very, um, it it's a very unpredictable situation right now. But I definitely see that the media and um, politicians are are trying to build up some kind of case for it. It seems to me like they are trying to build up some kind of, you know, manufactured consent, so to speak, towards this this um, eventuality to to make the protesters and the protest movement as a whole seem like they're violent, seem like they're white supremacists, seem like they're this and the other, and therefore should be violently excluded from participating in the democratic process, which is what these people are just doing. Um, so, I mean, I hope it's not going to happen, but I think it's, I definitely think it's, it, it's a true possibility. It is, um, absolutely. And I think, you know, what this shows me, if they indeed do crush this thing by calling in the army or crushing it otherwise, is, um, you know, how jealous the uh, government of Canada has become in terms of its privileges. For years and years in Canada, this isn't a new thing. It's been a decades-long process of the executive branch in Canada retreating from the legislative branch and focusing all power in the in the office of the prime minister. Right now, we have an imperial prime minister. The prime minister basically makes up all the laws, 
decides what's going to happen, and then just gives the orders to cabinet, and then uh, the majority party just votes it through. All right. There, there is no true democratic process anymore in um, in Canada. The only people that these people care to hear from is um, the bourgeoisie who lobby them behind closed doors. And also whatever faction of the petty bourgeoisie is currently useful to them. So right now they've been leaning heavily on the rule of experts or whatever, which are really just bureaucrats that answer to the executive branch, right? So it, you know, it, 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 I really think this is a battle, a very small and, you know, as, as small as it is in the grand scheme of things, right? Like this isn't this is going to reverse decades of of, of civil liberties and rights retrenchment and the um, the 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 movement of a governance from the legislative branch into the executive. That's not going to reverse that. But as small as of an intervention that it is, it is still a fight to to be like to have democratic rights, right? Like that's what what this thing is really about. And even a small intervention on the part of this protest movement is unacceptable to the Canadian media and political class. They're like, we cannot accept that you questioned even the smallest thing about how we run this country, right? And to your point about, um, and like that's, that's the real imperative of the establishment. They want to protect their privileges in terms of who gets to have a say in how the society is run and who doesn't. And they want to more moreover make very sure that even if, you know, whatever concessions they do make, they are going to do their best to try to make it seem like the, trucker, the truckers and the protest movement had nothing to do with it. Because they don't want to get workers more broadly thinking that, they, thinking that they might have some power here. They don't want them to get inspired. That's the real risk for them here, for the working class of Canada to get some ideas and start thinking more broadly about self-determination when it relates to their position at work thinking more closely about like, you know, who really makes the society run, right? Like, why should I do the thing that the boss is just ordering me to do if it doesn't make sense, right? Like that is what they're really scared of. And so that's why they're, you know, they've done all to minimize this, to smear it. And now they're trying to slowly kind of like make it go away without making a big show out of it because they know that this is politically very dangerous for them on a variety of levels. A absolutely. And uh, first of all, shout out to Martha Allen. Thanks for being here. Stalwart of the DC peace movement. Thanks for the tip, Martha. And uh, thanks to everyone who's here. Uh, we're doing this audio only because of my internet connection um, here in Nicaragua. And I'll address why I'm here a little bit later. Um, I want to get into some of the politics of the truckers, but I think it's first important because you brought up uh, Layla, maybe of Red Star Radio, you because you brought up the whole issue of the imperial prime minister, the growth, massive acceleration and growth of police powers, the growth, the power of the security state, ominous comments made by um, the, I don't know if it was the police chief or the spokesman of Ottawa PD, yeah. Um, but this this relates directly, I think, to the GoFundMe seizure and to the kind of architecture of surveillance and control that has been brought into open view throughout the course 
of the pandemic, uh, and many people kind of refer to it as a biomedical security state, a technocracy, um, whatever you want to call it, it's, it's really disturbing. Let's listen. Ability to identify and target protesters and supporters of protesters who are funding and enabling unlawful and harmful activity by the protesters themselves. Investigative evidence gathering teams are collecting financial, digital, vehicle registration, driver identification, insurance status, and other related evidence that will be used in prosecutions. Every unlawful act, including traffic and insurance violations, will be fully pursued regardless of the origin at any time in the future. The primary focus of each of these measures will be on the unlawful behavior connected to the ongoing demonstrations. This includes parallel and counter demonstrations. <laughs> yeah, well, okay, listen, um, I just wanna, just wanna tell people that we actually do still live in a country of rules and laws and a lot of actually the pandemic protocols and a lot of the restrictions and stuff in regards to the pandemic were purposely made as um, suggestions or within the context of policies of different institutions instead of as laws, because this puts the law, this puts it outside of the purview of, of the courts, right? The courts can, for instance, um, adjudicate on a policy that a hospital is pursuing. Um, in, in, in a lot of cases. And so this means that the government has never had to actually justify their actions. Okay, so, okay, I, I think what you're saying is true. I, I think there's been this uh, retrenchment of democracy into the hands of a small group of people in the executive, which in our country, Canada, is the prime minister and a few of his advisors. And, that, and also, therefore, an empowerment of the bureaucratic um, institutions that answer to the prime minister, right? Or answer to the executive of the various levels of government. Um, but like, like they're not, I, yeah, I mean, I, I just, I, I, I do think this is a serious issue. Like the, that the police essentially is using empty threats to dissuade people from supporting this protest movement, which is their lawful right. But I think that the, this use of fear and this use of a kind of, um, extra judicial like coercion is part of the reason why this thing still persists because people hear this they see this and they get afraid and what we really should be doing is asserting our rights as citizens of this nation and asking the bourgeoisie to fulfill what it states it is so you're, you you state that you are a liberal democratic nation okay where are these processes etc cetera, etc cetera. this is a very limited demand but Nonetheless, it's important because like without these basic civil liberties and rights, it's, it's, it's very difficult, if not impossible in some circumstances, to organize around workplace issues, which, you know, I would argue is the nexus of, of the true nexus of power. Well, like, yeah, so I mean, yeah, so like th that's how I would interpret this recent move by the Ottawa police to deploy what I think are essentially empty threats. Yeah, sure, the police can try to arrest you and charge you with some bullshit. That's another thing for them to do that. And then the Crown decide to take the time to assemble evidence and um, make their case in court and you know manage a conviction, et cetera. That's a completely different story. Making a threat 
words are cheap, okay? But like the law still stands as things are. Like we haven't really kind of crossed the Rubicon in terms of that issue. Well, we've heard a lot uh, throughout the, really in the past year about this concept of um, CBDC, central bank digital currency, which would be controlled by, it, it, it's, 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 it's blockchain, but controlled by central banks, therefore controlled by the, the states that we live under. And with, you know, vaccine passports and this kind of dawning of a kind of social credit system where your ability to participate in society is conditioned on your compliance, that those, that digital currency can be essentially turned off to social movements that are deemed a threat dangerous, extremist, insurrectionist, yeah. terrorist, whatever. Yeah. Uh, sort of, uh, it's sort of like sanctions on a smaller, more intimate scale. And yeah. what we saw, that press conference was delivered on February 4th, the day GoFundMe issued this um, statement, which I'll throw up on screen, mm. uh, where they announced that they were seizing a million dollars from the Freedom Convoy Um you know, it supports people protests and we believe that was the intention of it when it was first created. In other words, like, you know, don't, yeah. don't blame us for letting these insurrectionist, fascist, Nazi conspiracists and um, with unacceptable views who are a fringe minority of uh, for raising $10 million on our platform where we take a cut. However, because local law enforcement and police reports of violence, although we just so rarely see video of those reports and other unlawful activity like, you know, protesting. The Freedom Convoy <laughs> fundraiser has been removed from the GoFundMe platform. We uh, will distribute remaining funds to verified charities selected by the Freedom Convoy organizers. Um, so I don't know. Yeah. Or if um, the organizers are such fascists. Are they like, which Greenpeace chapter would you like to donate to? Like, I, I, I mean, how does this... Well, I, I mean, just I, I, I won't even ask a question, just ad 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 address this. And do you think this is something unprecedented? I actually saw um, a pretext for this during Russiagate when like RT's ability yeah. to Russia Today's ability to advertise on Twitter was offboarded by Twitter under basically direction by the Department of Justice and the FBI. And the money was donated to uh, all of these huckstering disinformation rackets, including one run by Hillary Clinton's former campaign manager, Robbie Mook, who like mm. ran the worst campaign in history and then got like RT's money through Twitter because of the FBI. It was we really weird, but this has been happening. This is just, this is the most direct overt case of this where the security arm of the state is telling online fundraising platforms where money can and can't go. Yeah. Um, so question about whether it's unprecedented. So in my view, um, I don't and, actually- And by the way, uh, we're get, sorry to interrupt, but uh, getting I'm getting some comments where people are asking if you could try starting your camera since your picture is much better than mine and maybe we can uh, go from okay. there. Let's, can, let's give it a try. I can try. Um, because I've changed my hair in the interim. Um, in terms of <laughs> its unprecedented nature, um, listen, 
I think people are getting shocked with this whole COVID-19 era because I think for a lot of people who, you know, make media, who generate culture, who generate intellectual work, a lot of us haven't really had our freedoms infringed upon all that much, right? Like I mean I've been in office the laptop class. Yes, sure. The laptops those that that work in the offices like that have maybe they're unproductive laborers or they're petty bourgeois. Um, you work in an environment where actually you are quite autonomous, right? Like you're not you don't have your the boss like breathing down your neck at all times telling you what to do, working you harder and harder. That is actually the case for workers that work on the factory floor, for instance, or for truckers, for instance, like very much the case for them as well. Um, and so it was a bit of a shock, you know, speaking personally, it was a bit of a shock for me to suddenly have this irrational authority limit what I thought were given freedoms and given rights, you know, the, the, the ability to see who I wanted to see. Um, the ability to even dictating what I need to wear when I when I go different places, like dictating I have to wear a mask, like dictating that how I interact with people. I couldn't give them a hug anymore. I couldn't shake hands anymore, right? But I think that in fact that is the nature of capitalism. It is extremely oppressive and um, dictatorial just by default, okay? And so um, I, I think part of the reason why I mean, there's a lot of reasons why the working class has not, you know, I, I think there's been many, many modes of resistance, but overall it's been quite disorganized. It's because they they already kind of been suffering this for a while. It's kind of part of their lives, their daily life to be treated in this way. But for a lot of us, it, it wasn't really like I, I can speak personally, it wasn't, it wasn't really. I was, it's been a you know shocking experience. And like perhaps that reveals, you know, my privilege or whatever, but I'm just being honest, right? So um, in terms of CBDBs, uh, the, the, so definitely that's coming. That's on its way. That's that's capitalism needs to. The reason why they're doing it is because they want to compete with the digital renminbi. So this is the reason why the Fed. Um, I don't know if Canada is doing. I don't think they're doing it yet. But this is why the Fed has started doing research and uh, looking into how to get these things in place. I think that the uh, GoFundMe example is an example of what happens when you have unaccountable institutions. Um, given power over resources. I mean, this is part and parcel of, ca of capitalist society, right? Like you give your resources, you're, you're, you have to give your body, right, as a wage laborer to someone that is not accountable to you in any real way. And so they can use your body how they please, they can use your time how they please, and they don't have to, all they have to give you in exchange is a, is a wage that is less than what you produce, right? So I think that the real issues here come down to, again, a lack of democracy and how we can subvert that, my opinion, is we need to create organizations and institutions that are, you know, uh, led and like led and organized by the working class, like institutions, new organizations of their own so that they can work around these types of constraints that always had existed to a certain extent, like um, trying to cut off financial um, support to different organizations, revolutionary organizations and like, for instance, like it was very common back in the day for uh, trade unionists to be spend like years and years in jail just in the course of doing regular trade union work. People need to find ways around um, this kind of stuff. And also they need to learn to resist. Right. Like it's actually, you know, this whole thing, this whole truckers protest. I I'm supportive of it, of course, but I do think that it is severely limited in many ways. And I think that the tactics do kind of reveal the petty bourgeois leadership of this protest movement or you know what goes as leadership i think it is not very strongly led but you know 
the fact that it's using a protest as a way to make its case, as a way to try to intervene in this whole issue, instead of say the threat of a work stoppage, which would be much more effective and quick in 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 in, in getting a demand fulfilled, um, speaks to number one, yeah, like the the kind of leadership that is in place in this protest movement, but number two, also like the lack of organization of the working classes. But in the in the, hopefully in the future, you know, it, it, for instance, I think back a lot to the um, kind of worker struggles that happen in the UK, um, you'll see that when workers are ready to strike and they're, or they really, or they have the threat of a strike with the real threat of a strike behind them, the ruling class is very quick to make concessions. They're very quick to, for instance, you know, give you back your money or release that person from jail. Like you saw this very often in the minor strikes of the seventies and eighties in the UK, for instance, maybe not so much in the eighties, but in the seventies for most definitely. And otherwise, like in the UK, the paradigm isn't that they have, they don't have like a labor court system as we do in Canada, the United States. It used to be that whenever there was a problem at work, people just walk out, you know, and that's how they would resolve, would resolve things. I, for examples of people who, you know, there was an example I read about in, I believe the seventies where a, um, a black worker punched a racist foreman and he was put into jail for that. And the workers just walked out in solidarity and demanded that he be released, and he was, right? So, so I think that when we realize that, you know, might makes right, then it's not so surprising or shocking if and when these things do happen. And also you have recourse to an actual, actual ability to do something about it, right? Like a GoFundMe is a private organization. They have their own policies in place. They can decide what words mean what, you know? So we need to figure out a way of um, setting the terms for ourselves or making them change their terms according to what we want. It's a battle of subjectivities. It's a battle of rationalities. Whose rationality will win against the other? Is it the bourgeoisies or is it the working classes? This is what it's really about. You know, what do these words actually mean, right? Like it, right now, the bourgeoisie has been setting the terms for these words for decades. They get to decide, for instance, even it, in a way that I find is very ironic because racism was something that was, for instance, racism or fascism was something that was created by the bourgeoisie. And then they turn around and use that as a label to smear people and organizations and protests in order to exclude them from the democratic process. They're, they're, they're calling them exclusionary in order to exclude them from the democratic process. But they're the ones who created these things. These are not things that are organic from the working class. So, um, I mean, that's my answer. I think that all sorts of, the, the, the kind of repression that we're facing now is nothing compared to what used to be faced in the past. So in that sense, we have benefited from the real sacrifices of working class activism throughout decades and decades. So I think we shouldn't disregard that. We're not starting at zero, but you know, as, as bad as this whole thing is, and I, I do think it is quite bad, um, it can get way worse. And so people are gonna have to learn how like, it, the working classes will have to learn how to resist again. They're going to have to get reorganized and have to learn how to uh, face, um, you know, amplifying, I think what will be amplifying oppression um, and, uh, and authoritarianism from the ruling class. Absolutely. Um, I don't know if uh, um, that worked out well with with audio, but it was one of the uh, better summations of what needs to be done that I've heard um, after this protest 
dissolves or achieves some limited goals, which are the two, uh, I mean, it could dissolve through repression. Those are the two ways I can see it going. Um, I wanted to, you know, before getting into where you think it's going, I wanted to get you to address the critique by the mainstream Canadian media that these truckers don't represent truckers as a whole. Um, you see them trying to like use the um, Sikh Indian truckers of Toronto, a kind of wedge because, you know, they're organizing against wage theft, but organizing against vaccine mandates is not legitimate. Um, uh, and that the mainstream trucker organizations or trucker unions, they don't support this. Um, we saw that in Australia with the tradies, you know, the construction trade work that their union condemned them as fascist. Um, but there were like so many people in the street that the media there said that uh, Nazis had crawled out of like cave Nazi caves and put on uh, Timberland boots and, uh, you know, work vests and that they were parading around as trade workers, but they weren't real trade workers. So these aren't real truckers. That's kind of what we're being told. Uh, I know you had Gord McGill on Red Star Radio, your podcast, Layla, who is a veteran of the Canadian trucking industry, I think of 25 years. And he explains the politics. Uh, maybe you can kind of distill his explanation and, and also you know, give your analysis on this apparent clash within the trucking industry, or maybe the media is just well, making I a clash out of nothing. Okay. Yeah, sorry. You just, you just cut out there. Um so, can you hear me? Maybe, yeah, can. Maybe let's uh, go audio only again. Okay. Actually, um, uh, everyone says your audio and video, everyone says your audio and video is good. So it's just on my side. So, you know, go ahead with the video. Okay. Um, All right. So, so basically, my speak? question was just, yeah. Yes. So, who, like, the question is really like, who speaks for whom? Who gets to be the voice of a protest movement? Or who gets to be the voice of the working class, et cetera? And everyone wants to take on the mantle of the working class, of course. Like everyone wants to be the one who represents working class interests when it comes to something that is a grassroots popular movement. Everyone wants to say they represent. The, the, the reality is that the working class doesn't have a voice as a whole. It doesn't have an organized voice. It hasn't had for decades in multiple countries, okay? All we can do, we, the best we can do, um, I think, is gather different pieces of evidence and look at what the protest movement is trying to achieve as a whole, and then make a decision, like, does this have, like, is this a proletarian interest? Like, can we say, and you know, for the, for the rest of the truckers, they're proletarian as well, of course, like, can we say that this protest movement represents their interests and is something that they they would be willing to support or are supporting? And I think that questions of bodily autonomy as against the state and the employer is of central interest for workers. This is not, and I think that the focus on like, oh, this person is saying this and this organization is saying this is a way of detracting from, the, from what should be the real focus, which are the demands. The question is, is freedom of association, is freedom of movement, is the ability to make, to, to have some degree of freedom when it comes to medical decisions, to have, um, to not have, to live with irrational positions from the boss. Are these things that are relevant and important to the working class? 
The answer is yes, of course. Of course, these are relevant and important to the working class. Is that all there is? Is will fulfilling these demands, excuse me, will fulfilling these demands, um, you know, grant the breadth of all of these uh, concepts? No, but um, it is a small way of asserting the importance of these as against the ruling class. And clearly, if this wasn't speaking to this, to this, to the to the fact that it does do that, then the media and the politicians wouldn't react so violently to this, to just a few truckers like parked on, on parliament, in front of parliament, as they say, right? Like it wouldn't be an issue for them if it was like the organizers of this protest actually um, did another convoy a few years ago. And it was a few trucks, it, they, they rode into parliament, they gave a few speeches and then they left. It was a non-event. No one cared about it. But now everyone's caring about it. Everyone cares quite a bit about it. And when I say everyone, I mean the media and politicians. You know, they care quite a bit. They care enough to, for instance, pass a unanimous motion in parliament denouncing the anti-black racism, Islamophobia, anti-Semitism, and all these different things that they, you know, claim was, um, uh, appeared in the protest, right? So listen, I, I, I think that I, I can't say for, no one can for, with certainty that this is the voice of XYZ group, but we can make a decision, like this is the challenge of politics, right? Like trying to understand a political phenomenon, especially when it's spontaneous and it's, you know, kind of self-organized in this way, trying to understand, okay, like, is this something I should throw my weight behind? Is this something I should, I should support? And in these conditions, like, you know, it's easy to get things wrong, right? But I think that there's a good case to be made that, um, yeah, like this is something that is of proletarian interest and will help the proletariat on many fronts and also has garnered um, a significant proletarian support um, in many ways. Like, so, I mean, I don't know, like I, 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 I it, it's hard to say for sure because there isn't like way I can survey the truckers or ask their organizations and, you know, confirm or can you confirm or deny do you support this protest movement? But um, we we have to do the best we can with the information that we have available to us. I think, and um, you know, I I, I think that um, you know it's it's of course within the interest of the media and the politicians to make it seem like these are isolated and um, you know unsupported uh, an unsupported group. But when I go to talk to them, they you know it's it's very because I read all this stuff and then I. I go over and I'm like, oh, they're going to be so sad that like, you know, X, Y, Z was said on the CBC today. And they go and they're like in the best of spirits. Why? Because they feel supported. They feel like they have the weight of all these people behind them. Right. And, and this is this is this gives a hint to the proletarian character of this protest movement, that these people are willing to take real risks, financial, reputational, etc., cetera, um, because they feel like they're supported. Right. And so. That support isn't coming from billionaires or whatever. They're coming from everyday people who are meeting and going out to them and giving them like physical goods for free, for instance, amongst other things. Yeah, if you're, you know, if you're watching or listening to this right now, uh, do what I did yesterday if you can't be in Ottawa and go and watch one of Viva Fry, it's V-I-V-A-F-R-E-I's live streams from the ground, from the protest, in Ottawa, I watched a full five-hour live stream yesterday, uh, or was it on Saturday? Um, you know, beautiful day outside, but I was completely captivated.
verify what I was seeing there because it was just completely starkly at odds with the mainstream media's portrayal. I mean, you really, if you if you watched or followed CBC or you know read the Toronto Star, any of these publications, pretty much you would think that you were witnessing January sixth in front of Parliament, and you instead see a festival atmosphere of families, uh, you know, polite Canadians, mostly. Um, you know, I mean, I guess it's mostly white people, but it's fairly diverse. It wasn't, it's not just white people, many immigrants, and there are some cringeworthy opinions on cringeworthy. And then others were that I found just downright inspiring. Um, I want to play one clip, uh, that was one of many interviews that mainstream Canadian and U S media would hate for people to see from Viva Fry's live stream. And, you know, this is just random. He's just walking around talking to random people. And this is the kind of thing that they're saying. Let's, let's, let's watch this with some audio. Not the hot chocolate lady. I want to share that. You know, I hear people on mainstream media saying there's a lot of racism and Islamophobia here. I'm a Muslim Canadian. And I came here when the Palestinian star for proudly warned. And I've seen nothing but love and respect and gratitude from everyone here in Ottawa. Everything that you're hearing on, on mainstream media and from the Trudeau government are a bunch of lies. There's no racism here. Everyone's beautiful. Families are having fun. They're dancing. And I'm here to tell like Trudeau that myself and tens of thousands So, yeah, uh, and there are many interviews like that. So yeah. I, I want you to address that. But, you know, you have the, the leader of the NDP, which, you know, the, the Canadian Radlib party uh, linked this protest to a mass killing of Muslims, I believe, at a mosque. Uh, yeah. And then you have, you know, professional leftists in the United States uh, who experience life through social media and screens. Um, they have been demonizing this protest as kind of a right-wing astroturf, uh, you know, kind of tea party movement and, you know, address them directly. I mean, address these people on the, on, on the left and why they seem so, why are they so compelled to, to write off this entire thing? Well, I, I, you know, in terms of Americans commenting on this, and I think also in terms of like Canadian politicians commenting on this, you know, they criticize like a, a perceived lack of diversity. And this is something I talked about with Gord actually. Um, you know, 
Canada is predominantly a uh, a white white country, right? But in this country, the main lines of division between the working class of Canada, historically speaking, have been linguistic, right? Between the French Canadians and the English Canadians, and the tensions that Canadians, like you know, kind of, I don't know, settler Canadians have, so to speak, had with the Indigenous peoples. And going to the protests, I have. I have never seen a coming together of these two groups in the way that I've seen it in this protest. I've seen Quebec nationalist flags being flown, tons of Quebecois flags. I would say at least 40% of the protesters that come on the weekends are French Canadians. Okay, it's very rare to see this kind of thing um, in Canada. In terms of other forms of diversity, the Quebec City mosque shooting. Okay, the Jagmeet Singh's contention was that um, people there are advancing a, um, they, they believe in the superiority of the white race. Listen, my parents, uh, I'm, I'm Muslim, my parents were married at the mosque where that attack happened, a horrible attack happened, okay? I, I cannot see actually um, any other protest movement in Canada that is more relevant to the freedoms and rights of Muslim Canadians than this current protest movement. Why? Many mosques, for instance, have started asking for vaccine passports to attend the mosque, okay? Um, it's, it's severely, the restrictions have severely limited freedom of religion throughout this country. Restrictions that Jagmeet Singh supports, right? And has been promoting and actually promoting even harsher ones, okay? So if he's, if he's interested in supporting any religion, including the religion of Islam and Muslims in Canada, who is being more supportive of this, okay? Will, they, they were angry because they were going to have a vigil um, in honor of the victims of that shooting and it had to be canceled because of the protest. Do you think that, you know, what is more important at this moment? Restoring freedom of religion to some degree in Canada which has effectively been canceled or nearly canceled for two years or having a vigil, right? Like who, who is to speak for the Muslims of Canada? Like, I don't know who Jagmeet Singh um, thinks he is to do this, right? Like, I think that, um, you know- I, Isn't he a I World think, Economic Forum young leader? He is, uh, he is, but uh, yeah. Like, Jagmeet Singh, is a, he's, he's not a serious politician, okay? He's he's not a serious political person in Canada. He's like, he doesn't like have many definitive positions on things. And he just always constantly panders to identity politics as a, as a supplement to having real politics. Right. So, um, you know, I, fewer people, I can tell you this, fewer people in Canada support the NDP than they do this protest movement. And that is, I can say with an absolute, like that is a factual statement, a hundred percent true. So um, yeah, I mean, I don't know. I, I I can't speak to the to the to the experience of everyone there that's that's gone there. And I think whenever you have a group of people in Canada, we're not like a crime-free society. We have some percentage of crime that exists. And so yes, that some percentage of crime will happen in this protest, right? And like people might have hurtful words thrown at them and things like that. But that doesn't mean that, that that characterizes the overall experience of people going to the protest. Hasn't characterized my experience at all. Like, um, you know, uh, so I'm not sure. It, it's a, you know, the question really comes back down to who speaks for who? Who represents what? Who can, you know, dictate the terms of this whole conversation?
And uh, I certainly, I will not join forces with the leftists in Canada, join this popular front with Justin Trudeau and Jagmeet Singh in smearing a protest movement in a way that is completely unfair. It is at the very least unfair, if not completely inaccurate. Well, it's also not just, you know, that's why I brought up, you know, Jagmeet Singh's World Economic Forum Davos Fellowship is that it's not just Singh or Trudeau that the supposed grassroots left is joining hands with. It's a kind of supranational bureaucracy seeking to usher in what the World Economic Forum calls a fourth industrial revolution, which will intensify and consolidate the architecture of, of mass surveillance and control and government outside of democracy uh, under emergency law, as well as this kind of governance over our biology, um, a real realization of the horrors of biopolitics. So that's kind of, and, 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 and big tech and the new oligarchs who have benefited so much from lockdowns and surveillance and contracts with the surveillance state. That's who I see them joining hands with. Um, and I, I, you know, I, I, I just have to, I have to do this. I did this when Alex uh, was on Alexander McKay, your co-host at uh, Red Star Radio. But Jacobin, of course, denounced this protest movement as right-wing extremists, and you know we got to get out with our masks on and counter in the outdoors and pro counter protest it. Um, you know, I just wanted to kind of highlight Jacobin's understanding of class struggle with this uh, one minute twenty second video. I think it might be instructive. I don't know if you want to react to it. I definitely have a, a few more questions, uh, but I, I just can't resist doing this. Class war is a player game. Players either capitalists or workers contending for dominance in the workplace and government. Capitalists improve their businesses and hire lackers. Workers organize and try to raise their wages. Each side plays cards and rolls dice to gain an advantage in a greater slice of economic pie. Victory comes when you use your economic and political power to enact your demands into law. Will the capitalists crush the rising wave of popular discontent and entrench their positions as the masters of society? Or will the workers triumph over the force of capital and make society more equal and just? Yeah. We're really excited for you guys to play Classwork. Right now, we have this prototype. In order to get it out to more people, we're going to need some additional funds. So that's why today we're asking you to support the project. By donating just a few, a few bucks on Kickstarter, you'll be able to follow along with the game's progress. For a few more bucks, you'll be able to get your hands on the game before we start target. And for a little bit more, you'll be able to help out all of Jacobin's future endeavors. So please consider donating today. Yeah. Yeah. I wonder how many well, ticks they had to do to catch the board game. But uh. my my whole critique of Jacobin can be summed up in this. Okay, the goal of socialist socialism or communism. Look at the classical Marxists: Luxembourg, Lenin, Marx, Engels. All of these people. They didn't see increasing wages or bettering workplace conditions, etc. Or even expanding the proletariat's participation in the democratic process, which was a big part of, for instance, Luxembourg's struggle, right? They didn't see this as ends in and of themselves, right? They 
the, the end was freedom and self-determination, actually, right? And so to say that, um, oh, it's just about, you know, getting like a buck extra on your paycheck, like that is the, that's the, uh, the pinnacle of workplace struggling. That's not, that's not what the struggle is about. It was always about being able, in association with your peers, to decide how you want to live your life and how you want to run the society in which you live, in which you create through your work, right? That was the whole, that was the whole project. And, but this, you know, the notion of freedom, the notion of human freedom, and I, I think Marxists have a different take on it than liberals, of course, but this whole notion has been completely erased from contemporary discourse coming out of, you know, the official Marxists or whatever. But it, when you read Lenin, for instance, even Lenin, who is, I think, you know, probably considered by many to be an authoritarian, was actually, that's, he loved freedom. <laughs> like that's, he wrote about it constantly. And um, his, you know, his authoritarian tendencies were very much linked and very much kind of provoked by his libertarian tendencies. You know, so I don't know. I just think this kind of misses the point to make it all about getting more wages and like capitalists are just greedy and stuff like that. It's yes, this is it's all tied to this. Of course, like it's we all we all kind of create ourselves from a material base. But um, what this really comes down to, essentially, like the whole kind of revolutionary moment is supposed to switch from a place where you have no control over your life to a place where you do have control over your life. And of course, your life is embedded in a community of peers and how we manage this process. How can we, you know, like as Colin Tai said, like how can we um, enable every individual to reach his or her full potential, right? Like this is, this is the, the goal. Um, and I think this is, it's definitely lost in the pages of Jacobin, broadly speaking, but um, yeah, so it's not like this game, you know, like it's, yeah, it's kind of a weird way of, uh, of looking at it in a way, because it, it, yeah, anyways. <laughs> I don't know if this is a great critique of the clip. <laughs> I, I mean, I just found it so, and sorry for the echo, everyone, I should have muted myself, but um, I just found it so transparently uh, absurd that they reduced class struggle to a board game when people yeah. actually get out in the street and strike a blow against a capitalist establishment that has been, you know, penetrated substantially by a like supranational hovercraft elite. They just heap contempt on them while doing absolutely. I don't know what the hell they're doing or what the the, the lockdown left has actually done in years. It feels like they're coasting on the glory of past movements. Um, and so many, by the way, so many of the attacks that I'm seeing on the trucker convoy or what's happening in Ottawa feel recycled from Occupy. Of course, the you know character of the protest people in the protest might be a little bit different. Um, but you know, Zuccotti Park, they were demonized as lawless miscreants. Um, there were calls for constantly for the police to clear them out. Um, they were accused of rape. They were accused of they were accused of racism. Melissa Harris Perry, from who was an MSNBC commentator, said they were you know overly white and you know don't listen to black voices. They were um, ultimately crushed on the basis of being kind of an illegal occupation that was polluting the place. And 
it feels so similar to me yet so many of the people who participated in occupy or at least made their celebrity off it uh, russell brand excluded have just looked at this whole movement with contempt and you brought up another point i guess maybe we could expand on which is how so many so many of the marxists who have been pushing vaccine mandates and you know supporting it and calling to vaccinate the world and who actually believe these COVID shots are going to somehow end the pandemic, although for some reason, uh, why is it getting worse? Which is not, and why is it getting worse in Israel after four booster shots? What's happening there? Um, you know, they're 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 on the one hand, on the one hand, they are recycling the tactics the phony tactics of syria regime change trolls from six years ago or four years ago where they would cite inflated death tolls inflated death counts from syria and howl about the death count and say we have to do something and they would never say what to do because if you're on the left you can't say we need to go in and bomb the shit out of damascus and bomb a lot of uh, people until you know, Al Qaeda takes over whoever is in charge of the opposition. But they, it was R2P. They were calling for a responsibility to protect all these civilians who were dying, leaving out the fact that at least half of those who died were government loyalists uh, and that the death count was just wildly inflated anyway. They're doing the same thing now. They just howl about death counts. They use like you phrases like eugenics. And anyone who denies what they're saying or questions what they're saying is called a genocide denier or a COVID denier, the same way they were called genocide deniers or Assadists on Syria. And they also will never state the specific solution to resolve this death toll. Some of them will. They'll call for a lockdown, which is so transparently absurd and anathema even to the ruling class now because it's so unpopular. And we also know, and not just through the Johns Hopkins study, that lockdowns have no effect on the overall infection fatality rate, uh, partly because, as Andrew Cuomo acknowledged during one of his Emmy award-winning press conferences in 2020, over 50% of deaths occur within, or, or sorry, infections occur within private settings. So they just don't say what they're for. They It's all about emotional an emotional ploy to attack people who have been right about this all along and where this was going shut them down and they brand them those people including you and me as libertarians because we have expressed some support for civil liberties which i think revolutionary and nationalist movements have fought for when you fight for sovereignty, you are actually fighting for basic rights. You're also fighting for economic rights, the ability to exploit your own natural resources, but you're also you're fighting for individual rights, which have been abused. I mean, I think about one of the opening scenes in the famous film, um, I Am Cuba, a revolutionary Cuban film, one of the first ones, one of the best ones of U.S. naval sailors, you know, docked in Havana abusing a cute woman and a man watching this and feeling oppressed. Uh, and I think this is what was at the essence of the Cuban revolution, along with the fact that their resources were being stolen. And so many workers I've talked to who've had to face the mandates, unlike the laptop class, they tell me they feel abused. Uh, one yeah. actually told me 
construction worker told me he felt raped because he was yeah. forced to take a jab in his arm. And that's how I think so many people feel along with the people who were put under lockdown in Canada, something Americans didn't experience that level of lockdown, but I experienced it and it was, it was absurd. So to me, this component of the struggle for rights is being denigrated by so many self-styled Marxists now in order to delegitimize this protest. Yeah, I, I, it's, well, I, it's stunning to me to see this because these Marxists should know better than most people how much it took, how much sacrifice it took to secure these rights and extend these rights for the working classes. In fact, the full franchise was not achieved, broadly speaking, in Europe and North America until after World War II, right? It's not that old of a phenomenon. In some countries, for instance, Switzerland, women didn't have the vote until 1971, right? Like, so I don't know why they're willing to just throw these things out, the right to protest, freedom of movement, freedom of assembly, to just disregard it like it's nothing. Even if this was, a, you know, some kind of unprecedented pandemic as these people will will um, advance, right? Like, I, I don't think that they should just be similarly, similarly like just, like ended, like canceled with no justification and no justification has been provided. No, no, uh, except for we are in a pandemic. No, like for instance, John Hopkins comes out with this meta-analysis showing how useless the lockdowns have been, okay? Why didn't a government do this when they were infringing, when they were conducting these unprecedented infringements on our civil liberties and rights? Because this is what, what leftists at the very least should have been demanding. They're saying, the government is saying, okay, we wanna infringe on these things. All right, demonstrate to us that this is actually worth it according to your own criteria. Like you say this will, whatever, save lives. Okay, prove it, prove it, show it to us in an analysis, like actually do something. All they did was like these ridiculous models that um, have again and again and again um, proven to be incorrect. And that's it. In terms of the vaccine mandate, you know, I, I spoke to so many people at the protests who spoke just about this. They spoke about how, you know, like they're not, um, people kind of depict people who, like in Canada, especially people who haven't taken the vaccine as anti-vaxxers, anti-science, conspiracy theorists. And certainly some people who haven't taken the vaccine are like that, but a lot of them have very reasonable, like a very reasonable opposition to it. Um, they just say very simply, I don't know the long-term effects. I, I don't feel like this is a dangerous disease for me as a young person, as someone who is healthy, as someone blah, blah, blah. And so I don't want to take the very minimal benefit that this vaccine proffers, actually, if you, just in the trial data, you can see that the absolute risk reduction on average, you know, uh, for age 55 years old, 51 years old, that was, was the average of the trials, the absolute risk reduction given to you by this vaccine is only 0.8%, right? It's not even 1%. For someone in my age group, it's 0.06%. So I don't, it's not unreasonable for me to, for me or whatever, whoever else to say, well, I don't know, it, it's a very small benefit. I don't know the long-term risks and it was never promised or intent or designed to stop transmission, right? So I don't wanna take it. Um, and you know, like and people saying like, oh, it's just, it's just these weird like um, anti-vax or anti-science workers who are opposing the mandates. In the province of Quebec, so many healthcare workers refused to take the vaccine when the province was trying to impose a vaccine mandate that 
the uh, Minister of Health there, Dubey, had to eventually back down entirely from his mandate because it would have wrecked the healthcare system there, which you know was hanging on by a thread to begin with. But nonetheless, it shows that even in its disorganized forms that we're seeing, workers are willing to lose their jobs over this. You know, I don't know why the rationality of these people doesn't count for anything in this discussion. And it doesn't, it, it, it's not, it doesn't even merit a debate um, according to these people. It's just like the vaccines are an unquestionable good. And it's in fact so good that it should be forced on people via employer coercion, via state-backed medical coercion. It's incredible for me to see this from the medical community, to see them just throw away the principle of voluntary informed consent, which is the basis of modern medical ethics, to throw it away as if it's unquestionably uh, worth it, right? This is a political decision, right? Like it's not, it's not merely about the science, right? It's not merely about you know, kind of reaching some kind of quantitative goal in terms of case numbers, in terms of whatever else, right? Like deeming if something is worth it, deeming if these infringements, for instance, are worth it, is something that needs to be deba debated in the political sphere, right? Like it needs, and this debate has not happened in Canada, at least. There hasn't been a debate. There hasn't been, you know, it, I think it's very interesting that in the judiciary, for instance, each side, right, can bring an expert witness, right? Like there isn't, there isn't like an expert that is unbiased, right? And he can just give his or her opinion about something. Each side has their own witness because the judiciary recognizes that experts come with their own biases, right? In ver for various reasons, okay? So I don't know why the government, like there's no opposition in this government here in Canada. There's no, <laughs> there's no, everyone just accepts the, the experts and they, you know, have a slightly different take on how hard we should do the, how, how hard we should do the suggested um, restriction. But it's that's not a real debate, you know. Like when it came to the election last time that we, the last election we just had in the summer of 2020, the, the only options were like mandates, but different severities of mandates, right? And that's what Canadians had to vote for. And so Canadians just sent back the same minority government that triggered the election to begin with. There was basically no change in seats. Is this a real democracy? Is this a real contention of ideas and a real searching for, you know, I, I think in capitalist society, this ability to do this process is so limited already, but even in its limited form, it's not been happening. Um, certainly not in Canada. Um, I haven't seen a single parliament in Canada have a honest debate about this issue where, where experts from the contending sides come and make their case to the public in an open way, present their analyses, and let people, you know, voice what they think. Like, does this make sense? Is this worth it? These kinds of questions. It's not happened. So, I mean, I don't know. I, I just think that this, like, ref this, like, I don't know, like this, um, the making the science like a god, you know? It, it, the science is not, science is not by definition, it's never something that's settled, but especially for these kinds of questions with regards to uh, the, 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 the mass management of pandemic, pro like the mass management of society to deal with a pandemic, for instance, um, a novel vaccine, right? Like these are questions that are, are under active contest, contest, contestation, right? 
Like this is not something that's even close to settled. And you're seeing this because, you know, for instance, it was supposed to be two doses and that was supposed to like end the pandemic. And now people are saying three doses. Now some countries are saying four doses. So obviously these are not settled questions, are they? So why, <laughs> why um, the science which gets to change its mind doesn't get to, it doesn't have to justify itself in any real way, except for, you know, sprouts of ongoing data that will come in and then fade out. And, but we never have a real debate about these things, about what's really, you know, is this the direction we want to take our society? Do we want to be taking this a vaccine dose every three months, four months, six months, whatever, under threat of losing your job, losing access to, you know, Ontario, you know, if you're not vaccinated, you can't even go sit in a cafe, you know, like, so these kinds of questions have not been addressed in the political sphere. Um, it's just been, they've just been, um, it is because those who are deciding this, it's only they're only coming from one perspective, their own class perspective. It's the bourgeoisie's rationality. It's essentially their subjectivity that they're imposing on everyone else. And no one is allowed to question that. This is the way that they want to see things go. And this is the way that their, the, you know, their devolved powers to the bureaucrats, that's the way that they want to see things go. And that's the way it goes. But it doesn't mean that this is the truth in any real way, right? Like it, I, I would say actually that the truth, the truth only comes from the rationality of the proletariat who has been excluded from the, from the political process and continues to be. And it probably will be in, like for the foreseeable future, unfortunately, um, in any real way. Well, they've been excluded from the formal process and that's why these protests, which I saw yes. coming a year, like many, many months ago are so massive. And that's why I'm going to continue participating in them. And I don't care if some right winger is on stage with me, there's going to be a subway operator on stage with me and a former NBA player on stage with me and uh, black organizers from New York, from uptown on stage with me. And there's going to be all kinds of medical professionals on stage with me firefighters on stage with me as they were at the defeat the mandates protest in washington dc and that for me was just an opportunity to guide people in a better direction uh, my speech yeah. was cut because the park service just firmly enforced a uh permit that i'd never seen anything happen like that on the national mall but they, they literally cut the electricity so i didn't get to speak i got to give my speech on um Jimmy Dore show from an airport. And it was about, you know, the corporate state and the imperatives of the corporate state and how that's what we're and how we are witnessing them unfold. That this is not actual socialism, as many people inside the protest ranks believed. And there were other people with anti-capitalist messaging on their signs, many people who are anti-war. I think people want to be heard because they have been excluded by a completely closed off corporate media that demonizes them as it just completely writes them off as citizens and by a Congress, I'm talking about the United States that almost unanimously with voice votes by AOC who lied about her voice vote and Bernie Sanders <laughs> proved the act, which was the beginning of a gigantic corporate coup in the United States. And the only person who stood up against it was a libertarian from Kentucky who built his own home using mortise and tenon timber framing techniques an, an, an MIT libertarian engineer named Thomas Massey, who really doesn't seem to give a shit what anyone thinks about him, 
uh, you know, if you remember his Christmas card, he really doesn't care. And he tried to hold it up and demand an actual vote. And he was called accused of killing everyone, just like those of us who are, you know, critical of the mandates are accused of killing people. And he was right. And the rest of Congress let it all happen. It was, it established a giant slush fund for BlackRock, wiped out Main Street so they could buy up all commercial real estate, created the eviction crisis. I mean, on and on and on. It was just pumping money straight into the financial industry. And there was no debate. So there's no debate about that. We've barely, but in the United States, we have much more of a debate because of Republicans, I guess. Maybe they're exploiting it. Maybe they genuinely believe in it. But in Canada, you had Aaron O'Toole, appropriately named Aaron O'Toole from the Conservative <laughs> Party, who ran the most pathetic election against Justin Trudeau. I mean, he was running away from this issue, wasn't he? And now he's sort of been removed. Uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, Trudeau faces a vote of no confidence. What have been the political repercussions of this protest movement where so many Canadians who've been ignored and abused for the past two years or so have finally made their voices heard? Well, yeah, the effects. So, okay, I just want to premise my um, answer with a critique of the terms left and right wing. And I think this is going to seem not relevant, but I think it is very relevant, okay? The terms left and right wing date to the French Revolution, where the bourgeois revolutionaries of the time that were fighting to overturn the aristocracy sat on different sides of the room, according to whether they were more supportive of the monarchy or more republic, like more more against the monarchy, like so more more Republican, okay? This is the, the that's that's where that term comes from, all right? I think at this point in history, monarchy is gone, okay? There's no more monarchy. I mean, it exists in a symbolic way as the symbolic head of state in Canada, for instance, in the UK, but it doesn't hold any real power. The power is in Canada within the PM. That's our real head of state. Um, just no one wants to acknowledge it. Um, so I don't know how much of a meaning these terms had. They were, they were used by the bourgeoisie to define their own political... Um, their own political formations, right? To define themselves and to understand their own revolutionary process. But the time of the revolutionary bourgeoisie is over. It's been over for a long time. We're now in the stage of imperialism, right? So it's a different game. So I, I don't, you know, like right wing, left wing, like in Canada, especially these terms are even more meaningless because they're certainly not at the federal level. There isn't a coherent uh, right wing um, federal party uh, formation really. I mean, it was kind of brought together coherently by Stephen Harper, but then once he's been out, it's been very difficult to keep together. And you're seeing this like struggle within the Conservative Party to try to remake their image after the departure of Harper. But the differences between Conservatives and Liberals are very slight in Canada. For instance, under Stephen Harper, who was considered a right, very right-wing Prime Minister, immigration increased, he uh, defended abortion rights, for instance. Like, so like taxation under Trudeau and Harper have remained about the same. Like it, the, like there's very little room right now for the bourgeoisie to maneuver. And so they have to make up these stupid little wedge issues um, that are basically made up. Like, so for, I think for instance, in, in the United States, abortion takes a big role in doing that and creating this, like, you know, the sense of contention between the two parties when really 
I would say they govern more or less the same. Like the state continues to expand under either party, same in Canada. And, um, you know, money gets funneled to the place that needs to get funneled, which is towards the capitalists, right? So like it's, the differences are, a big picture are not very real. And I think it's because there is, there isn't right left, you know, like there's, there's capital, the proletariat, and you know, this middling layer, the petty bourgeoisie. And that's it, that's, that's society. So I think, you know, when we have to, when we think through these things, I, I think, okay, who is on the side of uh, democracy? Who is on the side of, um, you know, expanding civil liberties and rights? Who is on the side of um, expanding the power of the proletariat? And that's what I, I have to think about. And right now, like at this stage in history, yeah, like any formation that comes in favor of that will be quite flawed. And it's just because the proletariat is, their level of organization is, is quite bad. And so it, it's gonna come out of these bursts and these like imperfect things where you have all these weird characters kind of coming together. You know, it's gonna be messy and one has to do the best they can to take a position. I think it is important to do that um, in the moment. I, I think, I think, I think as a political person, it's important. In terms of its impacts um, on the Canadian political sphere, listen, the Conservatives had been um, distraught since they lost the election. And the reason why they have to be so close to Trudeau is, 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 is what I'm saying. There isn't really a lot of room for maneuver to distinguish Conservatives from Liberals in Canada. You know, like for instance, the abortion question will never be reopened, ever. Like it's a, it's a finished question for a, a wide variety of reasons in Canada, namely because of the political structures we have in place. Um, and what the, both the Liberals and the Conservatives, what they really depend on to win a majority in Parliament is um, some suburban areas in and around Toronto, which have a lot of votes. And um, they kind of subsequently depend on the NDP um, doing well as like, so the Conservatives depend on the NDP doing well in order to take votes over from the Liberals and to win those writings and to make a majority. This is what they really depend on. And so you're not really gonna get a, a huge diversity of politics ever. In terms of disturbing the order, I don't know. It's hard for me to say. I don't want to be demoralizing. I, you know, I, I, I don't know how much of an impact this whole thing will have. I, I think that the, you know, so much respect actually, like, and and gratefulness for the leadership of this pro for this protest movement. As flawed as it is, I have my critiques, but they are taking a risk. I'm not. Like they, the truckers parked in front of Parliament are taking risks. They're risking their jobs. They're risking a whole bunch of things. I'm not. And so who am I to criticize? But I think the nature of the protest movement and its leadership and its tactics makes it quite limited and makes, makes what can be accomplished very uncertain. It could go either way. And I think, you know, I think it, it, it's as likely as not that it, you know, it gets crushed. But I mean, I certainly, I think that for instance, we've seen some movement. I think that this whole thing definitely triggered what was probably inevitable, which was O'Toole getting ousted as, as, as conservative leader, because um, he was just ineffectual. He was ineffectual to, the conservatives are very quick to call their leadership whenever they're not performing well. So that is, I think that is something, it did trigger that. Um, I think that we're seeing, you know, I'm seeing in the news like a change in the kind of think pieces that are coming out. You know, the, you know, more and more bureaucrats are saying, well, you know, maybe we should think about how to live with this virus, like maybe vaccine passports are unsustainable. And just a few weeks ago, they were talking about integrating a third dose in the vaccine passports so that you couldn't use them unless you got your third dose, the booster, so-called booster of the vaccine. So I think that's something. And in, in Liberal Party, I think it's, it's a bit of an iron curtain um, to see what's going on in there.
I think there's a small possibility that maybe Trudeau will be forced to resign. Perhaps he will lose confidence of his party. Maybe, and then I, I can see Freeland is very popular amongst liberals. Uh, she would be, she's kind of the heir presumptive, let's say, for the Liberal Party. I think that she would, um, it, I, I think the fact that they do have a ready-made leader there uh, to take his place as interim leader and perhaps even be elected um, at the, in the end as, as the Liberal Party leader is something. Um, the way that I view things of this whole thing is that, I mean, certainly in Alberta, for instance, we are seeing, so Jason Kenney there, who is the premier, was originally saying that the passports would end in March, and then the truckers there started blockading um, the one of the roads that go from Alberta to the U.S. and back. And so then he changed his tone from saying, okay, end of March to like, okay, very soon. And this week, and today, on Monday, right? Or this week, he's having a, a meeting with his cabinet to decide, okay, when we're going to do the end of this passport. So I think what I think can be said is that we're seeing an acceleration of trends. I I do think that overall, these restrictions would have wound down by themselves over time. I have my own analysis of the situation. I, I don't think there's a huge interest amongst the bourgeoisie to keep them going. I think that the reason why they keep on going is mainly because of the fact that they're given the power is devolved into the hands of these bureaucrats, which run this whole thing with a bureaucratic rationality, which means that the means become the ends. So there is no end to this. The only end is more vaccination, more restriction, more masks. Like there's no real way, way to end this because it's not like their job is not to do that, right? Like their job is to increase vaccination numbers, right? And, and so it, it creates this kind of momentum, right? That's difficult to rein in. But I think certainly like um, this kind of protest movement, what it can do, and I think what it's done for instance in the UK is give confidence to people to, to speak out more openly, to voice their views. I think it might give some MPs some confidence to perhaps voice some dissenting views. We've seen this in the Conservative Party caucus, for instance, not yet in anywhere else. Um, and, you know, shift public opinion to make it politically difficult for them to keep on going this way. But the last, you know, it's, it'll be always be difficult, I think, to pinpoint it on the protest because they're going to do everything they can to make it seem like it wasn't the protest. But I think it is having these kinds of soft effects overall. Um, and I think you know, I do think the demands are very, are very modest. I think that the only reason that Trudeau is not giving in is because he didn't think that this would be anything significant. He thought it would just be a small thing that came to parliament, like the last convoy that was organized by the same people did. It just came in and out. It, it was of no political consequence at all. It's, it's not been that. And so now he's like dug his heels in and he can't really retreat. So he's a bit of a, he's in a bit of a pickle, right? So, um, I think it's created some political um, some political contradictions within the political structures of Canada, and um, I think they're going to do the best they can to not make it seem like anyone can actually have an impact on them, anyone outside of their chosen group of people, of course. But um, I do think I think it's fair to say that it is accelerating trends towards wrapping these restrictions and kind of ending this pandemic um, in Canada. And but I think more importantly, like I you know. It's just like Luxembourg said, it's not about the movement, it's about the goal, you know, like, so I think, you know, for me, uh, the goal isn't really taken up by this protest movement. The broader goal for me would be an increased self-determination of the working class as a whole, an increased organization of, of their working class as a whole. And so I think, you know, I hope what, what the goal for me would be is seeing that happen, seeing people get inspired, See people think about you know self-determination in a more 
you know, it, 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 more closely, like think, you know, like, like a lot of workers actually like are, you know, grieving their bosses as a result of, or if they're not unionized, like other getting just fired as a result of, of, of vaccine mandates and maybe thinking, okay, maybe there's something I can do about this. Like, I don't have to just accept getting fired and, you know, have to deal with that. Like maybe there's something I can do in cooperation with my peers. And I think that, I hope that's what the, the true kind of result of this movement will be, but that's even less certain than my original contention. Um, I I sense around the west, across the west, that the the elected ruling class is increasingly finding it untenable to maintain constant rolling restrictions to keep kids out of schools and to run these booster campaigns where they're constantly updating <laughs> what the meaning of fully, fully vaccinated is <laughs> definitely in the United States, like by everybody who got two doses by now, you know, unless they got it last week or a few months ago. I mean, actually you pretty much have to get it in the last 10 weeks, according to the CEO of Pfizer, or it's totally worthless against Omicron. They're not vaccinated anymore. Like they just say they're fully vaccinated because they have some card that gives them like uh, membership in, uh, in the good team um, against like the bad guys who didn't take it, who are um, killing us all. It's, I just don't think it's tenable. But yeah. Canada seems to be kind of a stalwart. It's sort of a, it's sort of an outlier within definitely within the Americas, um, and. You know, you you have some Western European countries that are going in much harder than there's Germany and um, Austria with Draghi's Green Pass and Italy is absolutely monstrous infringement on civil liberties. People who are unvaccinated there are existing in a state of exception. That is true. And the state exception may not be a prison camp. It could be a lonely room with no job where you have to depend on the generosity of others and transportation is off limits to you. But it is a state of exception nonetheless, which Agamben predicted at the dawn of the pandemic. Um, and, you know, I wish I'd been reading his Italian um, through Google Translate at the time because I would have had a sharper perspective myself. Um, but the mandates made it all clear to me. I guess I, I, kind of in wrapping up, I don't know. I've been following a lot of the protests that have been taking place around the globe. And this is a much more global rebellion or resistance than I think a lot of people in the West, especially on the COVIDian side, want to acknowledge. Um, in the global South, I mean, we've seen giant protests from Morocco to even Tehran uh, to uh, there's basically been an armed insurgency in Guadeloupe, um, massive yeah back against Macron and Martinique, um, you know, all across uh, Latin America, where in, in from Argentina to Peru, there have been protests and these are completely ignored. But wh where do you see this going on a global scale? And, you know, because you, you address the Canadian situation, but on a global scale, this, you know, tip the balance against what I see as a kind of global program that's being advanced through multinational or multilateral institutions like the World Health Organization. 
uh, and the United Nations, uh, the you know European Central former Central Bank chief or current Central Bank chief Christine Lagarde has you know called for like a total vaccination program in Africa. We've seen uh, Rwanda trying to meet the 70% World Health Organization vaccination target and doing forced vaccination, actually sending police to capture people and force jabs into their arms. Um, so it's clear they're pushing and people are pushing back. But do you have a, is there any way to look at this through an international lens? Well, I think... Um, I think one thing can be said about the the international nature of this protest movement is um, I think that it, it just goes to show for me how irrational the rule and authoritarian the rule of the ruling class has become globally, um, and, and it's just become intolerable for people to be uh, subjected to such irrational rule because people are rational, right? Like. No matter what these people say, like, you know, human beings are born as the human declaration of rights, you know, like whatever, a liberal document, I don't agree with all of it, but like, it's very true that human beings are born endowed with reason and conscious. And um, I think when something becomes so unreasonable, um, the proletariat rebels, whether it's in an, in an organized fashion, like preferably, or in an unorganized fashion, as with these spontaneous protests. Where I see it going, it's difficult because I think we're a bit we're a bit of a tipping point here with an upcoming, what I think is an upcoming recession, major recession perhaps, um, as we're seeing the winding down of pandemic fiscal and monetary policy, and we're seeing these increasing um, rates of inflation, the banks will be, central banks will be under more and more pressure to raise interest rates. And I think that this will trigger a long awaited or long due financial crisis. And so I think I actually have a bit of a pessimistic view because I, I do think that some of the um, techniques and some of the protocols that have been used and experimented with during this pandemic will be used to um, apply even more and harsher oppression uh, on the workers as they're in the midst of a financial crisis, seeing their living standard get de degraded to a very significant degree in a way in which they probably they may not have experienced over the last 20 years um, because of various, you know, because of debt vehicle, like because of um, access to credit or because of, you know, for instance, welfare handouts, as we've seen during the pandemic, that was a big part of why we didn't have a huge uh, financial collapse right away. Um, and so they're going to start to organize and not just demand these, I guess, political rights in terms of bodily integrity, and in terms of um, freedom of movement, etc. But they're going to start to demand uh, real material things. And that's something the bourgeoisie is not willing to give without a huge fight, especially because profitability in your country, my country, throughout the world is at all times low. It's like razor thin. And so there isn't much room for the bourgeoisie to maneuver here, right? So they're going to have to increase the rate of exploitation. And when they do meet resistance, which is inevitable, they're going to reply to it with a lot of aggression. So what this, I think what I hope is happening right now and what I see happening, in, you know, if I can just speak personally in my own life, you know, I'm making connection, connections with people that I otherwise wouldn't have been connected to, various truckers and workers from other places. Um, the truckers, I'm sure, have created new links 
and new solidarities from this protest movement. I think society at large is, is also doing this. And I think these, these connections will carry over, you know, to the next kind of stage, if you will, and hopefully create some kind of basis off of which people can organize to meet the next, um, you know, deployment of authoritarianism, which I think will be worse than what we're experiencing now, if you can believe it. Um, but yeah, like I do think that uh, that's what I hope will come from this international protest movement. And like, I think what's been good is, is, is to finish off too, like it's been good to see who's willing to stand for certain things, you know? It's been good to, you know, separate the, the chaff from the from the wheat, you know, or whatever the saying is, right? Like, so that, I think that's been good because then the workers will also be able to see that. Um, and I think it's good to know who your enemies are, right? So yeah, that's what I see kind of the upside of this whole thing, I guess. We're definitely separating the chaff from the wheat. <laughs> people are seeing it. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I, I've, I've had the same experience personally as you, um, you know, some of it has been painful and tragic because uh, with the, the new connections come disconnections. Uh, notice the aggression tends to come from the COVIDian side almost exclusively and not from us. Like, I've never felt compelled to push anyone away because they were <laughs> afraid of falling under peer pressure. Uh, they tend to do it themselves. Yeah. So, um, some, some freedom but, haters, I, huh? Yeah. <laughs> haters of freedom yeah well <laughs> they hate their own they hate their own freedom i mean they're escaping from freedom and uh you know i think that brings me to a question that came up in the chat um which unfortunately i can't link Streamyard. uh shout out to the tech team at rockfin but uh people someone was asking what i'm doing in nicaragua basically i'm just here with my family because the u.s uh, sucked uh, why being in Washington in January sucked. So I came here because I like it here. Um, we have a lot of friends here. I like, I, I like the, um, the situation here, the situation here politically is actually very good. And the situation on a, um, so in a, in a social sense is good because while this government, the Sandinista government has encouraged people to take COVID shots and set up mobile stands and imported as many vaccines as they can get. They're not mandating it. And you really feel a difference. Although the uh, opposition, the U.S.-backed opposition has tried to create friction around the whole issue of COVID, you just don't feel the same social calamity and division that you feel in a Western country that has mandates. Society has not been fractured along the completely phony lines of vaccinated and unvaccinated. And people in this country, after what happened in 2018, where the society was torn apart by a U.S.-backed color revolution, which led to many deaths, they don't want to go back to that. They are very averse to social the kind of ugly social friction that turns neighbors and families against each other. Yeah. Uh, so there's a feeling of community here. There's also a real public health response by this government that includes off-patent early treatments. I walked into a pharmacy in Managua two days ago, two or three days ago, maybe, maybe four days ago. I'm losing track of time, which is a good thing. And I just walked up to the pharmacist and said, can I have um, some ivermectin? hydroxychloroquine 
rivaximine and all the unpatent off patent drugs. Let's just see what was going to happen. You know, they slapped it down on the counter, gave it to me. I said, is this used here for COVID? And they said, yes, of course. Uh, we've always yeah. used this for COVID. Of, yes, they're using vaccines here. Like they're not. The thing is, in the U.S. and in the West, they see off-patent early treatments as mutually exclusive for vaccines or a threat to the one-size-fits-only Moderna Pfizer approach. Here, it's totally different. It's a much more human approach. Also, healthcare is free. Healthcare is. Free. I've actually gone to a clinic near where I am. Uh, I did go uh, like two years ago, three years ago. I needed stitches, and I went in there, got first class treatment, and I couldn't believe it. They just didn't they just let me go out the door. Um, some aspirin in my pocket didn't charge me a thing. That's how it is here, uh, and so that has added to the positive response to COVID. I think so. You don't feel like you're in a crisis here. And then finally, since I arrived where I'm staying, I've met many expats or several expats, I would say. And they unprompted without even knowing who I was told me that they had come here recently to escape to freedom because of what was happening with the restrictions in their countries, making the lives, their lives. I mean, these are nurses, uh, their children are students. Their lives have become unbearable. Uh, one woman told me about a high school age daughter who's being forced to get vaccinated just to graduate from high school, doesn't know if she wants to go to college in the U.S. because of all the restrictions in campus and will likely come to college here in Nicaragua. I've heard of hundreds of families moving down to this one particular community and they have meetups twice a week. So I'm going to be speaking to them and hopefully providing a full picture of you know public health here if I get a chance. But my main priority in being here is just um, you know to be somewhere where I can sort of feel sane again. Um, and everyone in the chat definitely contributes to my sanity. I always refer to these these discussions that we have here as therapeutic. Um, this one definitely was. And the response uh, from the chat, Layla, has been that this is uh, my, my best discussion yet from a number of commenters. So thank you so much for volunteering your time. Thanks for being on the ground. Is it, is it better than knowledge, us Scott? <laughs> I think that they might not have seen Alex because that one that one is up there. Okay. It's, the best, it's the best discussion we've had where no one has be where one participant doesn't have a beard. So okay. say that. Yeah, I'm always um, trying to best Alex because he has a fancier accent. So I know it sounds so authoritative, especially from a you know Yankee U.S. perspective, like if he had like a South Carolina backwards accent but said the same exact things, I wouldn't trust him at all. I'm an <laughs> exactly. American. That's us. <laughs> um, <laughs> but yeah, thank you so much for all the insights. Uh, oh, my pleasure. People were people were asking in the chat where to find you, and I've said a few times, Red Star Radio, uh, one of my favorite podcasts. Um, is there anywhere else you want to direct them to? Well, um, I think my Twitter feed is a bit chaotic right now because I keep on reacting to Canadian news. But my Twitter is um, another place they can find me. Um, and my email, too, is always open. I get a lot of emails, actually. I love getting emails if you want to email me. Um, it's just my Twitter name, at gmail.com. Great, great. And I, I get emails, too, at thegrayzone.com, so you can write me there. And I try to respond to everything just like Noam Chomsky, but I respond to them unlike Noam Chomsky, if you know what I mean. 
Um, so I do. Thanks no, again. No, uh, better. Thanks again. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Yeah, it's it's sad to see uh, some Western European states deploying the Chomsky option against their population. Um, <laughs> Yeah. Stay, look out for a really good article coming soon at the Gray Zone via Parenti on this issue. Oh. Uh, so you'll see the Parenti tradition continues. Um, and yeah, we'll definitely look forward to having you and or Alex back. Um, keep on rocking in the unfree world. And next week, uh, we have a noted Jewish scholar and historian on to discuss race. Uh, we'll be live with Whoopi Goldberg. So. Stay posted. Peace.